courage and kindness, strength and gentleness, fortitude and tenderness, a father, a leader and a lifelong teacher, a comforter and a patient listener, a hero and a world changer, a gift from God above. Being a father is a high and holy calling. It is not only a blessing, but also a stewardship. Fatherhood is a precious opportunity and a divine responsibility because it is one of the many ways that God watches over all of us. A father is a protector and a provider, a hard worker and a family man, a role model and a faithful friend. And so from all of us to all of you, thank you to the fathers. church. Happy Father's Day. Can we give it up for the dads in the room? Yeah, I know as a dad myself, um, for the dads that are here, I know there's a lot of hard work and sacrifice and a lot of things that fall on your plate um, that you didn't necessarily sign up for, uh, needless to say, but so thankful to celebrate uh, you today. I've, I've told the last two services, <clears throat> speaking of Father's Day, I've always wanted to do a Father's Day message and title it, Who's Your Daddy? Um, because to point to our need for God, you get it, okay? But um, when I was in student ministry, that was just awkward and inappropriate. So um, I'm hoping that maybe one day um, I can do that. But we're so glad that you're here. Thankful for the men in the room. Thankful for also, even if you're not a dad, um, as a man, uh, the way that you pour into other people. And so I hope that you have a great day today. I hope that you are able to get a nap or eat where you want or eat what you want. Um, hopefully you're not cooking your own steak today, but um, if you are, with God's speed, okay? Eat it and be merry, okay? So uh, we're so glad you're here. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we have been journeying through the book of Acts. We are actually on our 17th week, uh, which is crazy to me. So next Sunday is our last Sunday. Um, and so um, we've been on an incredible journey, have seen the gospel expanded um, and Luke is an incredible writer uh, of what is going on here. And, um, and over the last couple of weeks, we've really um, been able to kind of hone in on um, Paul and his life and some different things that he's been encountering and how the gospel has been advancing in. And um, while you're turning to Acts 26, just a couple things. One, continue to pray, uh, as Brandon said, obviously for our students this week. As you can imagine, um, he will get no sleep along with all the volunteers. They will be dead exhausted um, in that, so pray. Um, we actually had a family that today was their first time coming, and they actually just signed up for beach camp. Like, they're probably finishing up signups right now, so, um, which is awesome. And so we want to see um, middle school students coming to Jesus. It's going to be an incredible week for that. If you would also, this is a selfish prayer request, but 
Sloan and I, along with some other pastors from our church, and about 100 of us are leaving for Israel tomorrow. So we'll be on a 10-day journey uh, to Israel. And I don't, I don't know what to expect. Looking forward to getting there. Um, but I'm going to tell you from this um, ADHD guy, um, the plane ride over is going to be the worst part, okay? Uh, I'm not looking forward to that, so um, just be praying for us, for safe travels, all that good stuff um, for our kids that we're leaving behind. Amen. All right, so um, anyway, it's going to be a great, great time, but miss you guys and really looking forward to coming back and sharing um, how, um, what God does, and I just think it's going to be so cool to like walk where Jesus walked, and it's going to be so, so cool. Everybody says the Bible just comes to life, so I know that's going to be going to be true, but, um, and thinking about Father's Day a little bit, um, I kind of thought about this question that I think is natural for us to ask in a lot of different avenues and ways in our life, but it's the question, hopefully you, you are, you are asking this question in life, is am I doing a good job? Now think about that. You can ask that in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, being Father's Day, dads, you can say, am I doing a good job as a dad? Am I, Pointing my kids to Jesus, am I, am I a great dad, am I spending time with them, or am I one that just gets home from work and is like, lay me alone, kid, I'm watching TV, all right? Um, you can ask that, you know, for your marriage. Maybe it's around your anniversary or something, and you can say, am I a good husband, am I a good wife? Um, and kind of evaluate your life. I, I think naturally we look at that question um, at the beginning of a new year, kind of New Year's resolution. A am, I, am I doing good in my health? Um, wh where am I in that journey? Or maybe you have a job that does like those dreaded yearly performance reviews. Do your jobs have one of those? Don't you hate those things where like you show up and it kind of reminds me of some of my classes, my final exams in uh, college, where you show up and you, you, you do it and you like, for a performance review, you're like, man, I've been killing it. I've been working for this company. I get no respect around here, you know, but I've been killing it. And you get in there and your boss is like, you're doing a horrible job. You know, you didn't meet your quotas this year or whatever the case may be. And you're like, I quit. I hate you. Um, so, but it's like one of those things is in life, we should constantly, constantly be looking at our life and say, am I doing a good job? But one of the places that we neglect in that is in our walk with God. That oftentimes we kind of can say that about all kinds of different ways in life, but when it comes to our walk with God, we really, maybe we're timid, maybe we are too hard on ourselves, but we really don't look at our walk with God, our relationship with Jesus and say, am I doing good? And then even if we are asking that question, which oftentimes we either know if we are or not, but oftentimes the tension then becomes kind of two things. How do you define good? right? And usually we define good with these two things. One, we compare ourselves to other people and we're like, man, I'm killing this whole relationship with Jesus thing. I've been to church twice this month. That guy over there, I know he only comes like Christmas and Easter. So I know I'm doing a good job. Or, or we look at somebody and say, their life's a train wreck. They say they're a believer. They say they're a follower of Jesus, but I don't see any evidence of that. So I must be doing a really, really good job. So we compare ourselves to other people or, which is more often the case, we, defined, we, we define what good is based on our own selfish terms. And we'll say, yeah, I'm doing good. I think that's good. I mean, I say the, I say the blessing at our meals, and we try to get to church, and I believe in God. My kids are going to VBS. I'm not a horrible person, so I, I think I'm doing pretty good. Where what we see throughout Scripture is to really answer that question 
in a real way is that we need to look at Scripture and God's Word to really say, okay, God's Word and Jesus' commands, are we doing good? That is the standard of which we should evaluate. Really, you may or may not know this, but Scripture from beginning to end is called the canon of Scripture. And canon actually translates into measuring stick or, or ruler. It is the thing that we should be looking at our lives and evaluating. Am I doing a good job? I don't know. What does Scripture say about it? Am I following Jesus' commands? Am I doing, is my life a reflection of who God is, what he taught, what, of what he was doing in the lives of of others. And over the last couple weeks, we have seen a real life example of this for you and me and the Apostle Paul. And we look at Paul's life, and I know it's very easy to be like, well, that was like in biblical times. That's really, really easy. Man, he was getting arrested for his faith. And so for you and I, if you are a believer, it is an incredible case study to look at and reflect on his life and look at our own life. And so in Acts 26, we're going to see, once again, another example. We kind of skipped some, some chapters um, where Paul has been arrested once again, and he has been in jail for approximately two years. And now he is going to trial. Kind of sounds like the judicial system of America, right? You've been in, he's been in prison for two years. He's just now getting his, his court date. And what we see is he is going to be before a king by the name King Agrippa. And while he's there, what scholars believe and what we see is that he's actually in an auditorium, or the way it translates is um, an audience room, but he's in a place with a lot of people. And you can imagine, you have a guy like Paul, who's famous, proclaiming God's word, things are happening left and right. It's like the talk of the town. It's the, the trial of the century, if you will. And so anybody and everybody is going to be in this room. That's not that it's a large room, but it's a smaller room. But they're going to be there. And on top of those people, you have huge influential government authorities and officials that are in the room. King Agrippa. You have a guy by the name of Festus. That's a cool name, right? I want to say Uncle Festus. All right. But, but you have him in the room. And they're there. And they're putting Paul on trial. Now, you could ask at the time, why is Paul on trial? And you get a couple different responses. The Jews would say, Paul's on trial because of violation to Jewish law. That he is neglecting the law of Moses. He's pointing people to Jesus. And he actually desecrated the temple because he brought in a Gentile. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be had. That, that, that goes against Jewish rule and law. And so you know, how dare him, so he needs to be put on trial because it's blasphemous. Now, if you were to ask the Romans, which Paul was a Roman citizen, why is Paul on trial? They would say it's more the chaos that he's stirring. He, he's going around proclaiming Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, and you just have to know in Roman culture, it was all about Caesar, and it was about his rule and his reign, and he was the king, and everybody needed to obey him. And anything that sidetracked you from obeying him was a threat to his kingdom and to his power. And Paul was that. Because Paul was saying, it's all about Jesus. If you're going to obey anybody, obey Jesus. And so what we see is he is in, in, um, in front of this crowd. Everybody's leaning in. And that's where we pick up chapter 26 of Acts, starting in verse 4. It'll be on the screens, and we're going to pull out some incredible things that what we see in our lives, how we can be committed, how we can be doing a good job from the life of Paul. So verse 4, and it's a lot, and I'm going to hopefully break it down, do a good job, hopefully, in your eyes um, to 
um, teach God's word this morning. So verse four, my manner of life, this is Paul speaking, my manner of life from my youth has spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because, now here's what Paul says, not because of violation to Jewish law or creating chaos uh, for the Romans. He says, I now stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he's essentially saying, I'm on trial because of my relationship with God. I'm on trial for my faith and my trust in Jesus. And kind of ends by saying, is it really that hard to believe that God, the creator of the universe, the, 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 the creator of all things, raises people from the dead, pointing to Jesus, really, what Paul is doing. Is that really so crazy? And so here I am proclaiming this good news, and, and now the Jews have accused me, and that is why I am here. And even that thought process had me thinking this week, not, not really asking the question, will I stand trial for my faith one day, but really kind of the flip side, would I be convicted because of the evidence of my faith? Think about that. That's a convicting question to, to ask yourself. It's easy to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people know I'm a Christian. But would you be convicted of the evidence that shows that you are committed and doing a great job in your faith and your walk with Christ? Would it be something that someone would evaluate and look at your life and say, man, they are absolutely a believer. They are committed to Jesus. Or would it be something that's like, oh, there's this kind of cultural Christians. They just kind of are surface level, especially here in the Bible Belt of the South. They go to church. They have good intentions, but they're not really committed. It's just more of a cultural type thing that you're supposed to do to be a good moral person. Paul, we know, was committed. He was sold out. And so he stands in front and continues in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Saying, hey, I killed people. I killed believers. I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I had all authority and power given to me through the chief priest. I went, I killed them. I forced them out of their own um, homes into foreign cities. But then he continues, verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of chief priest. He was gonna kill some more Christians. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those that journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember, if you've been here, this was back in Acts 9 when Jesus comes to the road to Damascus and, and visits 
uh, Paul and he encounters Jesus. And so Paul says, he's kind of recounting this story and says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to. Open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in God. Me. Let me stop right there. You see, Paul is saying and sharing this amazing encounter with Jesus. And he's sharing it in front of all these people. He's like, hey, this is what happened to my life. This is what Jesus did for me. Now, if you were here last week, you remember he gave this farewell speech to the leaders in the church of Ephesus, kind of saying, hey, I'm proclaiming Jesus. And it, it is my job. And it's all based on what Paul's reiterating right here that Jesus showed up, said, I'm going to deliver you and you're going to speak to all people, Jew, Gentile, Greek, to anybody and everybody because everybody needs Jesus. And so he's living this out and he's proclaiming and telling King Agrippa and this crowd, this is the meaning of my life. This is the purpose. This is what I, I live for. And so then he says this. I love this because of this call in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I wasn't disobedient to God. But declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn from God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've tried to help. um, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, oh, Uncle Festus right here, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Simply put, Uncle Festus said, you crazy, bro. How are you thinking this? You're proclaiming this gospel message. You're saying that Jesus came to life. You're saying that he met you on the road and you were blind and now you can see and all these different things. That doesn't make any sense. Now, kind of a side note. When you're living for Jesus, it doesn't make sense to people who don't know Jesus. They can't wrap their brain around it. What Paul actually says in a couple different places in the New Testament, this is why he says to non-believers, this is called the mystery of the gospel. It doesn't make sense. I mean, how do you wrap your brain around someone died in my place on a cross as a substitute for my place that separated me from God, but paid the price, then three days later was raised from the dead so that I can have life and that you can have life. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So no wonder Festus is saying, you're out of your mind. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And I love what Paul says. He, he defends by saying this. I'm not out of my mind. I'm not cray. He says that I'm speaking true and rational words. This is the truth. 
And so then he says, for the king knows. Uh-oh, he's calling out the king, all right? For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. So he knows. He's like, hey, King Agrippa, you've seen, you've witnessed. This isn't a secret. God's been working. Lives are being changed. I've been proclaiming the gospel. You've seen it happen. You yourself know all the stuff of the the law of Moses and the word of the prophets. And you know it's coming to fulfillment through Jesus. And so you know it. So then he turns to King Agrippa in verse 27, just three more verses. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And I love what Paul says. He says, I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that no only, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So essentially he's saying whether it takes a day, a month, several months, I don't care how long it's going to take, but I pray that you become a Christian and everybody who hears what I have been proclaiming and my story becomes a, becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, here's what I want to do just in that section. And, and this is like the longest recorded speech of Paul um, in the book of um, Acts. And so it continues. But just in that section. I want us to see three things that we can really kind of use as a litmus test, if you will, to say, am I, am I a committed Christian? Am I really doing a good job? The first thing, you know you're a committed Christian when there's a change in your perspective. There's a change in the way that you view life. If you're the same old, same old, I would say you're not a committed Christian. Now, I'll be harsh this morning, but what we see in Paul, Paul went from killing Christians and on the road to Damascus to kill some people because of their faith to saying, I'm going to Damascus to share my faith. So it was a change of perspective that he had in his life once he encountered Jesus. And so for us, if you are a follower of Jesus, once you encounter Jesus and you're growing and you're, you're intimate in your relationship with him, it changes your perspective. Here, here's a, a relatable way to think about this. When me and my wife Sloan got married, my perspective on life changed. It, wasn't, it was no longer about what I wanted to do, and I'm going to stay out late, and I'm going to go with my friends, and I'm going to hang out, and this is my money I work for, so I'm going to buy what I want to buy. You know, don't ever approach marriage that way, okay? And so it was now our, our money. And if I'm going to be late, I need to let her know, right? And if I'm going to do something or if I'm going to plan something, we need to talk about it. It was a change of perspective, okay, for parents in the room. When you become a parent, your perspective on life changes. Now, I will say this as a side note. Maybe I'm just reminding myself of this. When I became a dad, there is nothing more in my life, I wholeheartedly believe this, that opened up my eyes to God's, me and God's relationship and how he viewed and loved me than when I became a dad and I loved my kids. My perspective on life changed. I would take a bullet for two out of the three of my kids no, just kidding. That's a joke, all right? For all three of my kids, all right? I really would. And I, it took me a while. Like, I remember when I was younger, and my dad, my dad, like, would take me to the mall to buy clothes. He would never buy anything. 
But he would come home from Walmart for like, with like shorts for like two for $10. And I was so embarrassed. I'm like, dad, those shorts from Walmart and those tube socks that have stripes on them, like you gotta stop wearing those, bro. That's embarrassing. And as I got older, I realized he allowed me to shop at the mall and get what I wanted and he sacrificed. It was a change of perspective. And when we become followers of Christ, it's called a worldview, hopefully a Christian worldview. Everything that you see through life and in life comes through the lens of the gospel because our perspective changes. Paul said it this way to the church of Ephesus. He said this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So that's your life before Christ. And it is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you and I know those deceitful desires poke up their, their ugly heads every now and then. But he says, but be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So change your thinking, change your perspective and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is us in our life through the sanctification process of as a believer, we should be striving and walking towards righteousness and holiness. Not the things of this world, not our old selves, but saying my perspective has changed. And so everything that we come to, we are asking the questions of does this honor God? Is this hurting the gospel message of Jesus or helping it? Does my life reflect those things to the people that are around me that I'm walking towards righteousness and holiness that I'm set apart and I'm different because of my perspective change because of my life change in Jesus you know as well as I do and this is probably one of the biggest downfalls of the Christian faith are people who are hypocrites people who say hey I love Jesus but I hate my neighbor or yeah yeah I read the Bible but I take it out of context or, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I haven't been in six months to church, whatever the case may be. And I don't say that in a judgmental way, but a committed person shows that they, they are in this. They are in this and they are viewing life through this lens that gospel's changed my, um, Jesus has changed my life and I want him to change other people's life. Because here's the reality. The worldview of a maturing Christian is always rooted in the gospel. You could tell someone who's an immature believer when they put their desires before the gospel. When it's about their preferences or their feelings being hurt or the way that they voted or the way they see our culture or whatever they, they love, whatever they care for. When they put that at a higher level than the gospel, they're immature. But when we're maturing, the gospel is at the forefront of everything that we do. We talked about that last week. It directs everything um, in, in our lives. Number two, we see that in Paul's life. We see it change his perspective. But for us, as, if we're committed, use your story. Use your story. You have an incredible story. And, and so often, if, if, there, if there's been a point in your life that you have given your life to Jesus, I'm talking you have surrendered your life to him, then that means that you have an incredible story to tell. I've heard people say sometimes, I don't really have a great story or in church wor world, a testimony. I don't have a good testimony. Listen, every single one of us, we're born with sin. 
If you've given your life to Jesus, you've surrendered to him, good, bad, and ugly, whatever your past and even present looks like, if you've surrendered your life to him, you have the greatest story to ever be told. And I, I know what people are saying. Like, I wasn't a drug addict who was homeless, who ran away from home and did all these other things, and then I gave my life to Jesus and all, whatever. Now I'm going to move to Africa. I'm going to be a missionary. And I'm going to live in a hut somewhere, and I'm going to drink unclean water and hope I get malaria, you know? We're not saying any of that. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have the greatest story ever told. And here's the beauty of it, is that every single one of us have a different story. But the beauty is that every, while every single one of us have a different story, we all share the same story, Jesus. And so for us to point people to Jesus, use your story. Paul says, this is who I was, and this is who I am now. And the greatest, if you think about it, the best way to invite people into God's story is by sharing your story. You know, I, f I feel like in Christian world, and there's no offense, I don't mean any offense by this, okay? But I've been a Christian a long, long enough that there's all kind of different tools and resources that, that churches and people use to share the gospel. Like there's, I remember there was like the whole faith movement. If you remember the acronym faith, you want to share your faith. You know, F is for forgiveness and A is for acknowledging sins and all these other things. And then the, I've even seen like, you have like the bracelets that have a, all the different colors. I've seen, have you heard of the Avanja Cube? Have you seen this? All right. Like I've been on missionary trips. It's like this Christian Rubik's Cube, I guess. I don't know the way to put it. And it's like, there's like a picture. And it's like, this is you, you and me and we're separated from God. And then it's like, and we needed Jesus, you know? Then it's like, heaven, I'm like, that is so cool. It's like magic, right? But we have all these different tools. And, and so often, you and I, we feel ill-equipped. Like, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't really know a lot of Bible verses or whatever they ask me a hard question. Use your story. Use your story. That's what Paul does. He stands before him and says, this is who I was. I encountered Jesus, and this is who I am now. There's power in our story. You know what's so interesting? And I don't proclaim to be some top-notch evangelist. But when I share my story with people, I've never met someone that says, you know what, that, no, that's not right. That didn't happen to you. I'm like, Jesus changed my life. No, he didn't. No, he did. It's kind of hard to argue against your story. Use your story. And, and Paul has so much boldness. He's like, I know you believe this, Agrippa. I wish I had enough boldness to be like sharing my story to someone who doesn't know Jesus and be like, I know you believe this, <laughs> you know? It's rational, it's true. And even though there's an aspect of it that you're like, I just don't really know. This is what happened to me. Use your story. There's so much power in that. And that's what Paul does. And here's the third thing this morning. Know your goal. This goes back to what we were talking about last week when there's certainty in our purpose. See, the natural outcome of a commitment to Christ is a commitment to sharing Christ. It's a commitment to telling people, this is what God did to me. And as a byproduct and as an overflow says, I want people to know. I want people to know Jesus. I want, him, I want them to know what he has done for me. And the number one goal for any believer is, is for us to share the gospel. The last thing that Jesus said was to go and make disciples. We should be going every single day. Our goal is to show people Jesus. Our goal is not to have perfect church attendance. Our goal is not to be the best small group leader and volunteer in the world. Those are aspects of our faith. But it's all in void if people aren't coming to know Jesus. We're just like Christian robots 
We should be sharing Jesus. That is the goal of our life. Who cares what a church service looks like and feels like and sounds like if people aren't coming to know Jesus? And you know this as well as I do. I really do believe that's why churches all across America are closing because they're more concerned about the color of the carpet than they are about lives being changed for Jesus. Let us care about people's lives being changed. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close in a little bit different fashion. A little time of response this morning. And if you're a first-time guest, it's totally fine. If you do not um, participate in this, we will totally understand there is no judgment. Because you might be like, that's just weird. But in these two baskets up here, we have these blank dominoes. And you're like, that's a domino. doesn't even have any dots on it. And there's a purpose for that. And you'll be like, what is the connection with a domino? Here's, what I, here's the connection. Back in um, Acts um, chapter 1, we see Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I want you to wait here. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to have power to be my witnesses. Right? And you're going to see amazing, amazing things. In Acts chapter 2, we see another, another domino falls that the Holy Spirit comes and powers the disciples. Another domino falls that Peter gets up, proclaims the gospel message, and 3,000 people come and know Jesus. And out of those 3,000 people, more become followers of Jesus. We see tens and thousands of people um, becoming followers of Jesus. And it was just one domino after another that are continuing to fall because of their faith and obedience. And because of that, you have the spread of Christianity, and lives are being radically changed over and over and over. And it's easy for us to say, well, that was then, but what about now? And we have these dominoes to remind us there's a domino effect that each of us can participate and contribute to. So here's what I want us to do. The band's going to lead us in this closing song. And as you feel led, you don't have to, but I want you to come up and I want you to grab one of these dominoes. And I want it to be a reminder to you each and every day of your life of somebody that you're going to begin praying for or maybe you've already began, begun praying for that needs Jesus. A couple years ago, we said it's, it's your one. It's your one life. Someone you know that desperately needs the gospel. And you can write their name on it, but you put it in your pocket, your um, you know, cup holder in your car, in your dash, wherever you will see this every single day to stop and to pray and to remember and then take advantage of the opportunity that God gives you to share Jesus with that person. Maybe it's a phone call, coffee meeting, a lunch, whatever it is. But let us know the goal to see lives radically change and to just push over a domino and it to be a domino effect because here's the beauty I became a Christian mainly because there was a guy that poured into me well actually a bunch of people that pushed this domino over and there were dominoes that pushed those people over and let us continue that by, by pushing people and to show them who Jesus is let's pray together Father we're so thankful for the life of Paul what an incredible testimony that he goes from Christian killer to sharing your word. And here he is before, the king, before King Agrippa. That you even told him several chapters earlier, you're going to speak before kings. And he's sharing his faith. And so, Father, I pray for each of us in this room this morning that you probably already laid on our hearts. There might be more than just one. But let us never grow numb or weary of praying for people that need Jesus. But let us take it a step further, not just to pray, but to actually share. 
Let it be the byproduct of us being committed to you. It's a part of doing a good job as a follower of Christ. Let us be faithful. So Father, as we worship, let us use this as a time to reflect and to pray for that person. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So you can stand and as you feel led, come up to the front, get some dominoes and you can take it back to your seat and pray and let's worship together.